0: Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd Interviews where I talk with writers and other creative people about their work and how and why they create fantastic and mysterious places for us to explore. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with David Arnold, author of The Electric Kingdom, published by Viking Books for Young Readers, February 9th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me, Chris. So first... And I know you've been asked some of these questions before, so I'll try to, I'll try to make it a little different. Um, no no problem. Um, so considering all the ideas, um, that a writer has rolling around in their head, and I see that you've written, uh, you haven't written science fiction before, you know, it's, you've written more, I guess, grounded in reality, some magical realism there. Um, but how did this idea rise above the rest that are fighting? And, uh, and get written now.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I have a lot of author friends who have a, a bunch of ideas all at once and they kind of can cherry pick the best one for for however they're feeling. And if one's not working, they just kind of push it to the side and use a different one. And I've never had that luxury. It's never been my process. I usually only have one or maybe two ideas at a time. Mm-hmm. So I find myself in a position often where I am have to make something work. You know, mm-hmm. as a working writer, Um, I do write every day and it's, it's my livelihood and my job. And, um, so if something's not working, I have to make it work. (laughs)
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I will say with the electric kingdom, um, that was always, or since 2013, that has been that I said one or two ideas, the electric kingdom was always that second idea in line. Mm -hmm. It kind of was always on the back burner. I, I had, I first had the idea for the book back in, um, early, it would have been early 2013. I was taking care of my then newborn son or six month old son. Mm-hmm. I was a stay at home dad when he was a little baby. And, um, I was working on my first novel, Mosquito Land at the time and mm-hmm. had this image for a, um, for a book that would, with a family who lived in a boarded up farmhouse in the woods of New Hampshire. And I had no idea who that family was or why the farmhouse was boarded up or what. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where it started. And then over time, you know, it was always on the back burner. As I said, it was never the main story, but I would have ideas and I would just kind of go dump them in the folder. Mm -hmm. I just had this sort of folder dump um, and I would continue to drop ideas into it over the years. And I'll tell you, it's been interesting having the idea when my son was that young, Mm -hmm. you know, it published this February and he's he'll be nine in May. So it's an interesting trajectory to watch the book having kind of grown up parallel to my kid there's almost like a tangible passage of time that i've seen mm-hmm. take place in front of my eyes every day in my house and it's just an odd thing to have a uh, an idea that started when he started mm-hmm. and to only now be finished um so but it's been very rewarding and um and yeah I've, it's been a really interesting process for sure
0: is is the book um so my next question is usually you know tell me about the protagonist setting conflict of the book is it connected to your son's birth in some way? or?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, and I would have said for the majority of the process of writing it that no, it, it really wasn't. But as the book started coming together, I don't know, probably around. So I turned I turned to it and kind of got serious about it in early 2017 is when it, it kind of became my main project and the main thing that I was like, OK, the time is now the time i'm ready i'm ready to tackle this and um so yeah i don't know maybe a year or somewhere down the line as it was starting to come together i realized ultimately what the book is about is a father wanting to protect his child and wanting to spare that child pain and suffering and in the book even death itself and i think as a parent and um you know i just i i certainly can relate to that and um it is interesting though authors who act accidentally write about things you know it's Mm. we think we're writing about something and then later on in the process you Mm -hmm. kind of look at it and you're like oh maybe that's really what I was writing about actually Mm -hmm. um so so yes I think it's a (laughs) long-winded version of
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) so tell so then tell me about the book um does it still have the boarded up you know the family boarded up you know in the house.
1: Yeah, it does. So it's, um, I'll give a quick, a quick kind of synopsis of it. Um, you know, you've got the main character, Nico, who lives with her, her ailing father in a boarded up farmhouse in the woods of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Um, the book opens roughly 20 years after, uh, the end of the world basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he's sick and potentially dying of the same thing that has recently killed her mother Mm -hmm. and sort of in a, in a, um, mental haze, he, he, he tells her that this story that he's told her her whole life, basically, that there are pieces of that story that are true. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the story, there's this mythical portal and he tells her that that this thing is real and that she needs to go find it. He kind of mm-hmm. outlines a, a map for her to to set off and find this this mythical portal, which may or may not be there. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's very clear in the book that, you know, the father is dying and if she stays, she very likely will as well. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so that's Nico. And, and she kind of sets off toward um, t- to try to find this portal. And then meanwhile, you've got 12 um, year old Kit who wants nothing more than to paint and hug his mom. <laughs> and he kind of sees the world in this very pure and innocent way. But also it was, you know, he, as a 12 year old born well after the apocalypse Mm -hmm. um all he knows of the world is is this is this mountain town that he's been raised in with his mom and his two adopted siblings and Mm -hmm. everything he knows about what the world used to be is through books and or through his mom and so that was a really interesting character to write Mm -hmm. um and and Things without giving spoilers, things conspire to kind of set Kit and his adopted siblings um, off on their own um, sort of quest to find um, a settlement that um, they've heard on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so then Nico and Kit's stories kind of come together. And then lastly, you've got this um, really enigmatic is the word we use. Uh, It's it's a, it's what makes the book more sci-fi. I think it's what gives it the sci-fi spin. There's a character Mm -hmm. called the deliverer who lives in a a house on top of a mountain Mm -hmm. and who is omnipotent and omniscient and is able to be in certain places at certain times to make things happen. Um, and we're not really sure who the Deliverer is or what's going on with that character until all three stories kind of come together in the end.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, and again, I don't, well, I don't want you to give away anything, but it's interesting with the book classified as sci-fi readers are going to expect they're going to think you know because you have some mysteries in here that may or may not exist and when readers say oh i'm reading a sci-fi book they're going to expect something but the way you described it it could easily be simply a post apocalyptic novel about the real world in the future without other fantastic elements
1: absolutely and some of that's some of my favorite stories are ones that you can't quite define in mm-hmm. terms of a genre and. Um I walked into a movie theater in twenty fifteen to see what I thought was an alien movie and mm. I left a completely different person and that movie was a rival. Mm. Um and that was basically a turning point for me and in, in think, I mean, I think prior to that movie I would have said I wasn't a big fan of Sci Fi. Mm. Um but then I, I saw that movie and it was almost like uh, you know, Eric Heiser is the one who adapted it, but it's based on the brilliant short story by Ted Chang. Mm-hmm. Um it, Ted Chang's work the Movie Arrival, plenty of other movies and books that I've discovered since then have led me to realize I actually do like sci-fi. I didn't realize that's – I didn't know what sci-fi could be. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought sci-fi was one thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's really not. And that really opened a lot of doors uh, for me and what was possible in my own storytelling, um, things that can be grounded in mostly reality but have sort of sci-fi twists. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I know I, – I, yeah, I, I rarely think about genre or – or, you know, age groups or anything when I'm writing a book, I really just, I want to try to tell the most interesting story that I can. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, this was, yeah, this was definitely a a turn for me in terms of, as you said, I mean, my first two books are completely realistic and my Mm -hmm. third one has a speculative angle to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but this one was a definite, uh, pivot. Um, but it was, it was very challenging and very rewarding in so many ways. And, um, And yeah, I'm, I'm okay with not being able to quite define it. Yeah.
0: Are you familiar? Have you come across the Soviet director, Andrei Tarkovsky, who does, he does sci-fi, but in a sort of.
1: Tell me something that he's done. The name sounds very familiar.
0: Oh, Stalker. Um, He did, I believe, did he do Solaris, the original Solaris? Okay, I I think think maybe
1: that's, okay, I need to, yeah, and this is, I still feel like a a baby (laughs) in sci-fi world, like there's all these, you know, people that I haven't discovered yet. Um, Mm -hmm. The name definitely rings a bell, for sure. I just finished The Three-Body Problem, um, Mm -hmm. the the second half of 2020, and just, that trilogy just absolutely blew my mind, and um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I do, but I do feel like a baby in the genre, for sure.
0: Well, having read the description of, descriptions of your other books, that's why Andre Tarkovsky jumped to mind because the feel of his films almost feels like what I'm feeling from the description of your books. So I just see a, okay. a connection there. Yeah. That's why I brought it up. Yeah, um, I'll
1: definitely have to check him out.
0: I'm speaking with David Arnold, author of The Electric Kingdom. You can find more information about his work at DavidArnoldBooks.com. If you like this podcast, full contact nerd interviews so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new fiction and nonfiction studies in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mysteries, gaming, game design, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my Twitch channel, Full Contact Nerd. If you're looking for new military and general history books and information, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. My YouTube channel War Scholar and my podcast Military History Inside Out. If you want new technology, science and space books, check out technologyandspace.com, my YouTube channel Spacewalks Money Talks and my podcast Technology and Space. Now back to the podcast. What research did you do for this book? Um, to write it, if any.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely did. Um, you know, it's funny. Four books in now, I've found the research process to be different. You know, there's, I, I do have some friends who write historical fiction and they have a very sort of regimented research process in terms of how many years they spend researching a book based on what histories and what countries and, and there's a, there's a sort of a, Formula is not the right word, but something like that, that they're able, they know what they're getting into before they, they tackle a research. Hmm. Um, for me, you know, it's been different with every book. With this book, research really came down to um, setting, researching the place that they were going to be. Um, you know, I guess that's one of the great things about it being sort of sci-fi is you don't have to explain all of the science. I can I could kind of get away with um, their... You know, and also like the characters themselves don't fully understand a lot of the things that are going on. So if you want to really like call it sort of an immersive experience for the readers, um, it's okay with me if the readers aren't totally sure. It's almost like putting you in the in the position of of the characters in the books. But um, but, yeah, for research with this book, it really was I I went to New Hampshire twice. Um, I'd been before my wife has family that lives in Maine. And we've driven up there a few times and we've flown up there a few times and spent some um, some time with her family and their amazing house in the mountains. And um, so I had kind of had that that setting kind of instilled earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew I wanted it to be, you know, the majority of the book takes place in the woods. And I also I just. I prefer like a wintry atmosphere, I think. So I knew I wanted it to be kind of in the north and I knew it needed to end at a sort of a bigger city that had a river. So I kind of backed into it that way and I, and I landed on Manchester, New Hampshire as the sort of the anchor mm-hmm. um, for the ending of the book and then had to kind of figure out leading into Manchester, where was, where were they going to be coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then took a couple of trips up there and, and kind of walked along the Merrimack River starting north of Concord kind of all the way down into Manchester and just spending some time in that, in that space. And, um, you know, you can, you can start with Google earth, mm. but for me, it, it, you can't end there. Mm. Um, it's fine. It's almost like a, like a paint by numbers. I feel like on the internet, you can kind of get all the shapes where they need to go mm. and then you have to go to the place to, to fill in all the colors. And, right. um, a great example of that during my second research trip as i was walking the river um i don't remember if it was north or south of concord but it, i think it was in mm-hmm. concord proper but i'm right there on the river you're right in the woods and then i kind of stumble across this um it's a strip mall mm-hmm. but it was like the back of it was bait was facing the river so i was like well let me walk mm-hmm. around to the front and see what these shops are so i can write them into the book and it'll you know it'll be all the more accurate." And I circle the shops and I see there's a books a million there. And I was like, Oh, this is too good. Um, you know, it's like the ultimate wish fulfillment, um, of writing your characters stumbling across a giant abandoned bookstore. So I, <laughs> yeah. so I kind of adjusted the timeline a little bit because I was like, Well, they've got to spend the night in this place. Um, and it, I do, I do kind of make it sort of miraculously intact. You know, most places are just like totally devastated and, um, mm-hmm. and, but, uh, but yeah, so that was a really fun thing that, that, that whole scene came together only because I went up there and, and walked that, walked that path. So, mm-hmm. um, so research really was just about going there and kind of immersing myself in the setting.
0: So I noticed, so with this book and, um, one of your previous books deals with, I guess, Ugandan, uh, people who had been in an African civil war. Um, in yeah, uh,
1: Con- the Republic of the Congo, in Congo. Kids of appetite. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So I'm wondering, are you drawn to sort of, um, people or devastated background, you know, apocalyptic kind of settings? Are you drawn to that or is it just more dramatic to write about?
1: Hmm. I hadn't really considered that. And you know, the, with, with Kids of Appetite and the, and the characters you're referring to, that came about because I was friends with some people, some people who had escaped that civil war. Hmm. And, um, and they were refugees for a little while. And I remember I actually worked with, um, dear friend Gigi Kinzunza as her name. And I, I worked with her for a few years and, and she would talk often about the misconceptions of, of where she was from and hmm. people kind of assuming that it was one thing when in fact, they quite loved their life there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were forced out and it became, you know, I don't know what I'm actually, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is today, but but at the time it was a war zone and they had, they had to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that was more of a character based research and, and being sure that I was telling their story respectfully and accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with this, it was very much sort of immersing myself more in the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So tell me some of the things that, uh, that generally inspire you and that could be books, movies, TV, music.
1: Sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I was a musician for 10 years in Nashville Mm -hmm. and, and, um, was actually a working musician when my wife and I found out that we were going to have a baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that really was what turned me to writing books because, Mm -hmm. you know, I say working musician, I was, but it was freelance work. And mm. um, my wife had this great job with, you know, benefits and um, she had the adult job, if yeah. you put it that way, I think. Uh-huh. And so, um, so it was decided pretty quickly that I was going to be a stay at home dad. And that was when I realized, you know, I had a, I had a home studio at the time I was recording, music for people. And, you know, you can't record music while you're taking care of an infant. (laughs) Mm. Um, and so that's really when I got serious about writing books, but yeah, so music for sure. And I, I, I come up with, um, I don't think I, I don't come with playlists for my books or my characters so much as I come up with atmospheric playlists, I think. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Johan Johansson was a big, um, influence and, uh, and also I listened to his music constantly while writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I never know how you pronounce her name. It's another Icelandic, um, musician, Hildur Gudna daughter. Mm-hmm. She did the score for, um, Joker and a number of other things. But, um, so I tend to find like atmospheric just in the last few years, I've really gotten into music, instrumental music, uh, mm-hmm. Max Richter, um, wonderful band called, um, slow meadow. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, yeah, those, those are musicians for, for sure that inspire me. And, um, and then I look, I love Christopher Nolan movies. Uh-huh. I love mind bendy kind of time twisty. I just I just watched Tenet. And don't ask me if I understood it because I didn't at all. But I definitely enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's really, you know, that's part of when I when I'm reading Ted Chang. I mean, that's the same feeling I get, which is I don't I'm not fully connecting all of these threads. But I trust as I'm reading this book, I trust that he's connecting the threads and I'm able to kind of just let go and enjoy the experience. Hmm. Um, and I think that was definitely a North Star for me with this book in particular, because it does, I mean, it's four nonlinear timelines and, uh, it jumps around a lot and it, and especially kind of actually, um, one of the trade reviews called the book perplexing yet satisfying and i thought oh. that's what i'm going for i'm okay that's good i'm good with that cool. um i i'm okay with people not fully connecting all of the threads but i do hope that they're able to kind of trust that i have um and that it's you know that it can be an enjoyable uh experience in that in that regard mm-hmm. but yeah book wise i mean station 11 is a great i mean that book certainly opens i won't say it opened, i mean i've read post-apocalyptic before that book but just in terms of being able to tell like smaller character driven stories mm. with the backdrop of this enormous scope was something that I hadn't seen uh, done before. And it was just very inspiring. Mm. Um, certainly with this book, uh, Ling Ma's severance is another great example. You know, what I really love about post-apocalyptic fiction is, um, you know, as opposed to apocalyptic fiction, post-apocalyptic fiction sort of inherently shifts the conversation away from what happened right you're not dealing with how the world ended mm-hmm. you're dealing with who survived and how are they navigating a new world mm-hmm. so it sort of inherently shifts the conversation away from plot and on to character and likewise i think it also inherently adds a little bit of hope because you're moving out of the um are we going to survive the end of the world into okay we've survived it now what <laughs> kind yeah. of mode. And yeah, there are still plenty of dangers and, and things to try to survive. But, um, I think that's probably why I'm drawn to post-apocalyptic, um, literature. Mm-hmm.
0: So. so the, you know, the, the the great, the cataclysmic event in your book, um, I believe is a, a plague that struck people, which, um, isn't, you know, plagues are, are not uncommon, you know, in apocalyptic ideas, but considering COVID right now, how are your feelings about COVID happening as you released a book with this?
1: Yeah. Uh, really interesting. You know, I, my publisher penguin had picked February, 2021 as the release month by at least February of 2020. If not prior to that, I mean, the way publishing works, everything is about a year out. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we had that date for a long time. And as I said, I've been kind of working on and off on this book since 2013 and then getting really serious about it in 2017. So, yeah, the timing of this has been very just, yeah, bizarre. And and I I will say I'm grateful for a number of things, but one of them is that it's, you know, I talked about the difference between apocalyptic fiction and post-apocalyptic If this, if I had written a book about the end of the world, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how I would feel or, or if I would have even uh, let myself, I may have just said, look, we got to shut it down for a little bit and, and wait. I'm not saying that's definitely what I would have done, but, Mm -hmm. but I would have at least seriously considered it. Um, So I think part of why, um, you know, the book, as I said, it takes place 20 years after the apocalypse and it does get pretty dark it goes to some dark places but i think my hope is that there is hope um and that the a reader would um would feel some sense of of hope themselves as they're reading it mm-hmm. uh i found myself actually 2019 was a really hard year for me i spent a couple of years working on this book and nothing else mm-hmm. and i'd really i'm a pretty obsessive type a <laughs> creative so when I get a hold of an idea, I just kind of jump all in mm. and, and in this case, I had really let it, it, it was not a healthy balance. Mm. Um, and the end of 2019, I actually landed in the ER with some, some pretty serious issues. Um, and that was really for me, I've heard my whole life and believed, knew that it was true. The ways that your mental health and physical health are interrelated, mm-hmm. um, interconnected, but I hadn't experienced that firsthand until the end of 2019. And, uh, and so, so, so yeah, that was a, that was a tough thing for me, but I do feel like I say all that to say, you know, the book does get pretty dark and it gets pretty heavy, but, but as, as, as the things start to build and everything starts to come together, I felt my characters kind of moving toward hope Mm -hmm. and was able to kind of move that way with them, I think. Mm. And my hope is that the readers are able to do that as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually, I'm proud that it, that it's coming out now, actually. I, I definitely had my concerns. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, as we've gotten into this more and more, I've, um, I've been drawn to fiction that does that. And I guess my hope is that, that this can be a book, Mm -hmm. um, that does that as well.
0: So, and I don't want to ask details about what you went through, but do you feel like in your life, have you had to, have you experienced things that you, as you wrote, you thought, wow, I, I don't think I would have written this as, as i'd like to if i hadn't experienced this what i would have gotten it wrong if i hadn't experienced it before
1: yeah that's an interesting question um i mean it was such an immersive process and i and i think the book is what it is in part because it was such an immersive process so it's hard to wish it away Hmm. or to, to wish that it hadn't have happened like that right um but also i never think it's never good to sacrifice your health for your art <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and and that's not um it, yeah i mean i my i've talked about my wife and kid a little bit i mean they were my saving graces through that and kind of helped me find you know therapy and and medication and kind of get getting getting myself more balanced out and realizing yeah, that that what I had done and what I had allowed, the isolation that I had kind of fallen into mm-hmm. um, wasn't okay. And um, I guess to put an ironic twist on it, that I discovered that at the end of 2019. And so then leading into 2020, um, as far you know, we've been pretty serious about quarantining and not leaving the house. And mm-hmm. um, I've actually felt less isolated, to be quite honest, because... My wife's job's been great. So she's been working from home. My kid has been in virtual school. So whereas before I would be home all day by myself working, I now, I now have them here with me all day, every day too. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 my hope is that moving forward, I can find a way to continue, continue immersing myself into the project, but not so much so that I lose, that I lose sight of, of some important things.
0: Yeah. So, um, you did allude, you sort of anticipated one of my questions. Um, maybe you can elaborate on it. What, if this book had a soundtrack, say if, if, if it were a movie, you know, what, mm-hmm. what sort of soundtrack would it have? What sort of feel?
1: Yeah. So I, I would start with Johan Johansson, who he, he scored. So he scored a rival, um, and, uh, theory of everything. And I'm forgetting some big ones. <laughs> I've got a playlist of his music. So I don't go to his records. Right. I just play my Johann Johansson playlist. Right. Um, Hildegutna Dottier. I'm, I'm totally butchering her, her name, but she's brilliant. Um, uh, yeah, I think just the really, um, atmospheric, um, a, like a hammock. There's a band called Hammock that's hmm. fantastic. Uh, it's still you know there's melody there it's not just noise but mm-hmm. it is but it is very atmospheric i think it it would fit at home if you were in a in a cabin and it was snowing outside and kind of bleak but also just like a little bit of hope um not unlike the book mm-hmm. <laughs> um so and it's actually it's funny i just i'm going to look at my phone not to do anything other than remember <laughs> the name of this guy you want to get name? right I, right William Bazinski. I don't know okay. if you've heard of him, but no. I just discovered him the other day. He's an audio um, – well, as I understand it, uh, he's, he was an audio engineer for years, and he discovered some old um, loops on actual tape, but the, t- but the tape was disintegrating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he repurposed it into, like, uh, soundscapes with okay. this disintegrating tape. So hmm. the, the tracks are hmm. actually called disintegrating loops, and they're wow. just these – haunting kind of atmospheric melodies um so
0: yeah huh. i want to check that out it's very cool actually i wanted to ask it since um did you write lyrics as a musician or was it just just the music part
1: no i did i did both uh, i was in a few bands um hmm. and and I would write songs primarily with another one of the other members of the band. The two of us would write most of the the music and lyrics, and and then I had some solo projects where I would I would write music and, um, but I also did film scoring and in I mean independent film scoring and then youth camp videos and you you know it was freelance work and I had a home studio so basically whatever paid <laughs> at the time and it was it was a fun job. It's funny though, you know after when I transitioned into writing books, I really, you know, we moved um, houses and I don't have a studio in our, in our current house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, but I've recently kind of, I've, you know, I can feel myself in these, you know, after years away from it, um, I've recently had some ideas, mu- uh, music ideas, and I feel like I might be trying to figure out a way to get back into that, into that space. Cause I do, I do kind of miss songwriting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really interesting because I would have said for years that I didn't miss songwriting because I feel like what I do now sort of scratches the same itch. I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, it was always about the creation of the thing Mm -hmm. and that's what I, I'm still doing that. So I don't feel like I've left anything necessarily, but, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm done with that space and I, for a long time I thought I was, uh, Mm um, so. Interesting.
0: So this book is for young readers. Are your other books for, for young readers at all as well or?
1: So I'm going to, um, very, very politely (laughs) correct you here. Hmm. And it's actually not a correction of you. I mean, you're, it's not just you. There is a, there is a, I have a, I have sort of a personal, um issue with the idea of prescribing books for ages there was a really interesting article that came out recently about why why adults should be reading picture books mm-hmm. and i loved it uh and i absolutely agree with it i i don't think that any book is for any particular age certainly i mm-hmm. don't write books that way mm-hmm. so but but yes and and i hope i didn't come across as sounding like a jerk just no, then. No, <laughs> no, I don't know. um it certainly they market it as that you know it's for teens or it'll you know it'll and that's, that's fine. It's great. I love teen readers. That's I love talking with teen readers. They're some of the most curious, excited. Um, I, it's fantastic. The emails that I can that I get from them. It's just wonderful. But um, I very much feel like I write books about teens. I don't think I write books for teens. Okay. Um, and and so and I've made, you know, I've had the privilege of meeting some incredibly smart book people, librarians, booksellers, publishers, editors. And, and I leave it to them to decide where to put a book on a shelf Mm -hmm. and, and who to, who to try to sell it to. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, I just try to tell the best stories that I can. Mm -hmm. And, um, And yeah, I do think I, yeah, I I also love getting emails from adults who say, I'm not your target demographic, but I loved your book. And I'm like, I don't have a target demographic (laughs) and thank you so much. Well, no, it's Um,
0: a a lot of fantastic sci-fi and fantasy has been quote written for young readers and it's still beloved by everyone, you know, coming
1: of age stories. Like what could be more, a more universal, you know, idea Mm -hmm. we've all, we've all, we're either there or we've been there and, Mm um, i'm drawn to those stories for sure um and that's the reason you know i've never sat down and thought okay i'm gonna write a young adult novel now
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um that these are the stories that that i'm drawn to and i think a lot of it is because i love coming of age stories and a lot of it is because i have visceral memories of my teen years Mm -hmm. you know it's funny i'm one of three i have two i have two brothers and when we whenever we whenever we talk about our teenage years, uh, they're both like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't remember. I, I'll, I'll talk about this thing that happened and they're like, yeah, I don't I just don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> and I'm like, how could you not remember that? Yeah. I was talking about with my wife the other day, our kid who is almost nine. Mm-hmm. You know, he is starting to get in that place where he's like really embarrassed by us. Like, uh-huh. just at all. He's just embarrassed Like even <laughs> we'll be home alone and he'll just be like, Dad, you're embarrassing me. And I'm like, there's no one here. There's no one around. <laughs> um so oh, it's funny. I remember that. I remember that feeling like so vividly of just being so embarrassed and just just for them, like not even for myself, just so embarrassed for my parents to be acting that way. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I do remember those years viscerally. And I wonder sometimes if if that's partly why I end up writing so many teenagers in my novels.
0: Hmm. I'm speaking with David Arnold, author of The Electric Kingdom. You can find more information about his work at David Arnold Books. Dot com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, interviews so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new fiction and non-fiction studies in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mysteries, gaming, game design, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez, Full Contact Nerd, my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my Twitch channel, Full Contact Nerd. If you're looking for new military and general history books and information, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want new technology, science, and space books, check out technologyandspace.com, my YouTube channel, Space walks money talks in my podcast technology and space. Now back to the podcast, but actually the, um, what I was asking with that question is, um, were you, did editors want you to write to a certain reading level or, you know, cut out, you know, no curse words or, or don't use these words, you know, that sort of thing. Did you have to deal with that?
1: Right. Uh, no, not at all. And in mm-hmm. fact, um, I feel like, you know, I'm trying to remember back. My first novel came out in 2015, and I think that was—I don't know—I'm not gonna—I'm not gonna say that definitively that's when things were changing because that's really when I came into the game. So it feels for me like everything was changing, but maybe it wasn't. And, and what do I know? But um, I will say I my—I've just been so fortunate. My publishers and my editors have just been—they um, have a very long leash in terms of content and what they—they've just been you know, I spent 10 years banging my head against the wall trying to make music work (laughs) Mm. and, and kind of working really hard to carve out this one little space that, that sort of was working and that for me, at least it would have been good enough to just stay there. Mm. And, and, you know, publishing has just been a completely different experience. It's, you know, I knocked on the door and it's just been, you know, welcome and come on in. And, Mm. and, and they've just been, they've been fantastic. So, um, yeah, it's hard to know. I don't know if other I don't I don't hear any stories of other authors saying that they've had to rein in their content. Um, I think most publishers and and editors are just interested in telling you know what's right for these stories and these characters. And there may be some books. Certainly, if you're talking with like middle grade books, I know there's a lot more about content, what's allowed and what's not, or what's appropriate and what's not. But once you get into YA anymore, I feel like it's just a lot more about what's true to this story and if you're if you're cursing left and right and it doesn't make sense then let's bring it in but but I haven't heard any stories of, of editors doing that just you know just because it's inappropriate or they're mm-hmm. trying to keep the content down or
0: hmm okay um, so let me turn to your your writing process and I know you said you get a little ultra focused on writing but um, would you say there's anything out of the ordinary that you do to a uh, complete drafts or, or the final, the final work?
1: Well, I, yeah, I mean, so it takes me, I, if I had to pinpoint an average, mm-hmm. you know, this book took a little bit longer um, for a number of reasons, but in, on average it takes me two to two and a half years to, to write a book. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say one of the things that I do uh, I don't remember when I started this is the thing. I can't, I look back and I don't, I don't remember what, yeah, what transpired to compel me to do this, but I walk or we have a a really, it saved us during quarantine just a very walkable neighborhood. Mm Um, so we're walking either as a family or, or solo all the time. And I started getting into listening to these Benedictine monks. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess it's sort of like a meditative practice, um, It's a podcast, uh, from this monastery in the French countryside. Hmm. And every day they have, they just have tons of content. And it's just these monks coming together to chant. And there is something not just in the chanting that I find, um, centering. There is also an element of feeling small in the world that that grounds me, you know, that, that these monks were doing this this morning in France <laughs> mm-hmm. and, yeah. and 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 feeling the sort of how ancient that is. And then feeling it. I don't know. I find that to be a very balancing, centering practice. So I've, I've been doing that for years now and um I don't anticipate stopping anytime soon. So mm-hmm. just in terms of that's not really writing process, but it is well, something right. it's a practice that I've gotten into that. That when I get stuck in my writing, or, um, I mean, it is a daily practice, but, but certainly walking and, and listening to these monks are, uh, an integral part of what I, what I do.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, as a musician, do you ever write segments of your, your novels and read them out loud and try to get a feel for the, the cadence?
1: Yeah. The musicality of language is so important, right? Um, I, hate the sound of my own writing. I hate the sound of my own voice. Actually, I'll never listen uh. to this podcast because I'll just want to <laughs> jump into my earphones and punch myself. Um, then I'm sure it's a lovely just it'll it'll be great, I'm sure. And, and you're great. And I just can't <laughs> listen to my but it's funny. It's not just my own voice. I know that's not an uncommon thing. Um, I've I've been again, I've been very fortunate with the the actors, the voice actors who have done the audio books for my books. <laughs> And I'll listen to enough because Penguin always kind of says, "Well, here are some actors we're thinking of working with. What? do you, Here are some clips. What do you think?" And and they've been great about kind of letting me have a vote on who I would love to work with. And 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 these actors do great jobs, but I'll get I'll get a like a few pages in, and I just I can't do it. And it's it's so even when it's a voice that I love and it's doing a terrific job, there's something about hearing my own words that I don't I don't enjoy. Hmm. So a book very much feels um well when it's done it's done and i feel very finished and i don't go back and read it or anything like that as i as i go along there are times when i'll when i'll read it aloud just to kind of hear how they sound mm-hmm. um but no and i have some friends who read everything out loud and and that helps them and really um it works for them and that's great but i think most of it just happens in my head
0: are you um are you sort of always editing your own work even when it's finished or you're listening to it? Or are you thinking, oh, I could have done that better? And...
1: That That's probably part of it is, is you know, as you get, as you go along. Yeah, what is, I mean, the the uh, painting is never finished, only abandoned. Art is never finished, only abandoned, is that yeah. the saying? I mean, uh-huh. that's very, I've found that to be very true. If I go back to it, I'm going to want to redo it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. at some point, you just kind of have to draw a line in the sand and say, no, you're done. Mm-hmm. So, but I am constantly you know in terms of process and editing I do kind of have some sort of hybrid of edit as I go mm. um, I don't try to perfect the pages as I'm going but I also can't just dump dump it and go and, and just go on without looking so I do some sort of a hybrid I think of kind of revising a little bit as I go with the understanding that I'm going to want to go back and potentially rewrite the whole thing that mm. um, I'm incapable of just of just word dump move on word dump move on. Um, hmm. but again, that works for a lot of writers. It's, there's no one way to do it. Um,
0: so did you feel that same way with your music? I mean, you know, did you feel that same stress in a sense?
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think back to the, you know, when I used to record every day, it hmm. was a building process. You know, I would, I would start with sort of the bones of the song. I guess there are a lot of ways that they're very similar. Um, you know, I would I would write on guitar, but it and then usually record the guitar part first and then kind of build. That was the benefit of having a home studio. And I was never I was never, um, you know, an expert at any of the instruments, but I could sort of play all of them. Mm-hmm. So um, I would write on guitar, record the guitar and then kind of build the song in the studio that way. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I guess, and, and, and certainly I think there are some elements in writing books that are, that are similar, um, mm-hmm. in terms of kind of coming up with some structure and then filling it in as you go. Mm-hmm.
0: But can you go back and listen to your own music that you've created in the past?
1: Yes. Not all of it. <laughs> yeah. There's, are, there are some songs that I, that I'm really proud of and, and mm-hmm. that generally isn't that. Yeah. I, I guess I don't have the same. That's interesting. Cause you would think I would, I sing on some of them and um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I, I think it's a little bit different with music for some reason. If, if it's a song that I, that I feel like has aged well over time and that, that I'm proud of the recording of, mm-hmm. yeah, I could listen to it again and, and it wouldn't be a problem.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, so you're digging is... up a
1: lot of, you're digging up a lot of new things. So I haven't, I haven't thought about any of that. Before. <laughs> That's really, I'm going to have to think more about that.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm genuinely <laughs> curious. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so consider so this is your fourth novel that you've put out um has your approach to writing changed from the first to this one if it has
1: yeah hmm. i think it's always hard um uh you know you when you finish a novel it feels very much like you've you know climbed a mountain hmm. and so so then it's inevitably it's that question of well what's next and you're like no i just climbed a mountain like what else, what else do you want from me? Yeah. Like, Oh, there's another mountain over there. And it does. It feels like kind of starting over. So it, mm-hmm. it doesn't get easier. I think it is there is there is a little bit of relief just in the knowledge of having been here before. Mm-hmm. And when the panic sets in of I'm never going to be able to do this again this idea is not nearly as good as the last one. Mm-hmm. I hate these characters because I, I love the last characters and I hate these. And that like now that I've done that four times and I recognize that I am that I ha- say the same things at the beginning, hmm. at the end of every project, I say the same things. And at the beginning of every project, I say the same things. And, um, you know, my wife is happily points that out. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, but you said that last time, too. Um, so I guess you do have the benefit of experience and of having kind of looking around and being like, OK, I don't remember how to get out of here, but I do remember that I've been here before. And mm. knowing that you did get out of it, and um or, or climb the mountain, or whatever metaphor you want to use, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, so I guess that's the that's the only way it's changed is that I'm able to kind of recognize the places that I'm in because I've because I've been in them before now.
2: So. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what part of the process? So you've disca- so you've described the process, and it feels like a very. It's a process that, that takes a lot out of you
1: is is what
0: I'm getting. So what, what part of it do
1: you like? So that's really funny because I guess it's true. It does. When you, (laughs) I like, I like most of it actually. Um, I love, I love that I get to do this work and, uh, you know, it's, it is hard and challenging, but, um, I am, I am entirely unqualified to do anything else. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I was not a good student. I did not like school. Mm. Um, I, I don't have any other interests. You know, when I was in music, it's funny because it's, I, when I look back now, it was, my goal was never to be, I joke that I was, I was in Nashville to be a rock God. And I guess that's true in as much as I loved a few of the bands I was in and I wanted them to succeed. Mm-hmm. But if you were to ask me my real goal, it was never, you know, to two or three hundred days a year, or you know, to write or you know, to to uh, produce a double platinum album. Like those were never my goals. My goal was always to find a way to make a living by creating. And yeah. and the fact that I have that I am now here doing that is it's not lost on me how lucky I am and uh, and just how yeah how how fortunate I am that I get to do this and and that I found this thing that I that I, you know, I think we toss around the word calling and I, I do feel like this is what I was made to do. And and I'm happy. I'm so happy. I get to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it's all rainbows and sunshine, but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I love, I just love You know, like writing is often, it's just like putting words on a page that you feel like anybody could, could write. You're like, this isn't very good. And what makes something good is when it is, is what, is when you write something and you're like, that's me, that's, Mm -hmm. that's something that came out of me that no one else could have done. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, it's so magical and so special and just, Mm -hmm. there's really nothing else like it. Um,
2: so Mm -hmm. that's a
1: very good point. Yeah.
0: Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt there, but
1: um... no, I just, I felt bad because when you asked it, I realized I've, I've made this sound like just a torturous process (laughs) and it isn't always, um, there were parts of electric kingdom that definitely were. And, um, Uh, But yeah, no, I, I I love that I get to do this. I love, I love my job.
0: So um, obviously we've talked about the musical work you've done. Have you done any other work um, outside of writing that's impacted how or what you write?
1: Some extent. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how to say this without just sounding like a total cliche. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: You know, it all kind of goes into the stew, right? I mean, everything that you've, Every all of your experiences and all of your jobs. And I look back at all these jobs that I that I had. Some of them I hated. Some of them actually were quite fun. I was I got to be a preschool teacher for, I don't know, five or six years. And it started as a part time thing while I was doing music. And then it became a full time thing. And the music picked back up and it went back to a part time thing. And I just loved hanging out with kids Um and that was a fun, that was a really fun job. And I, I I don't think there are direct ways that that has related to what I do now, but certainly that helped shape, shape who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and I guess it all kind of, go, it all kind of goes into making your own unique worldview mm-hmm. um, and, and really writing, writing, I said this a little before, but like, I mean, it's about voice and, and about your own voice and all of the things that, that you've been through and all of your jobs kind of, God, this all just sounds so cliche. I hate that I may even saying them, but it's true. It's, you know, it's like, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, there are a lot of jobs I had that I hated, but, but also, and I, am not going to badmouth them, but, um, but, but all of those things went into, you know, to who I am. And, and yeah, I don't think I would, if I took any of those things out, I think my books would be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
0: so as as a writer with sort of the the mentality of observing your world and 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 writing about it how, so dealing with pre- the preschool kids did you notice any stresses or you know because you have young characters in your books did you take anything away as far as the stresses they felt about life you know any any aspects of that
1: You know I was mostly dealing with like Four and five year olds <laughs> when I was in preschool. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: And, um, I will say it's funny. I just, I said what I just said before though, I think was, is not true about, about there not being a direct tie to the preschool world. I mean, really one of the things that led me to writing and it was, I was still in music. So I wasn't, I wasn't serious about writing books mm. yet, but I remember reading some of these picture books and just thinking, I could do this. I mean, and that's like, right. That's, we've all kind of been there. <laughs> Anybody who's read to a kid before and, and by the way, there's nothing harder than a, than writing a good picture book and and there are many out there and i'm friends with a lot of picture book authors who i have the utmost amount of respect for because writing it being able to cr- to create a story in so few words is just a it's a really unique skill and um my hat's off to them, but, but there were a number of years there where I think publishers were a little more lenient about what they were publishing hmm. and in the picture book world, and so then the market just got flooded with all of these just horrible picture books, and I was right. reading many of those, and that did kind of lead me to say, well, maybe I should write some picture books, and so then I would hmm. try that, and then that got me, actually, I, I joined a, a group called the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, um, hmm. and that's where I met uh, my my people, the hmm. writers who... I'm friends with to this day and um, kind of got an education and a writing community there so that when I did get serious about writing, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was just floating in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) I was like, Oh yeah, no, I have these friends here who are doing this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there was, there was actually kind of a direct um, correlation between that job and and what I do. Mm
0: -hmm. So uh, to step back to the book um, when it was edited, you know, when you sent it in to the editor, was there, were there major parts that were taken out? Was it too long and it had to be chopped down or, or maybe bulked up?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the really interesting thing about, um, I would say probably the most common misconception about the editing process mm-hmm. is that it's, is that it's completely separate <laughs> that, that you write the book and then the editor does the editing. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, at least, uh, you know, with the exception of your, your debut novel, because that really is, you, you have to do the whole thing all on your own and then try to sell that book, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's got to go through all these rounds of revision and, and you do all of that either by yourself or if you have a, uh, you know, a critique group or a critique partner, but it's all peers, you know, your peers. And with the exception of your debut novel, um, you know, my, my last three books, electric kingdom, maybe, maybe especially even, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's been, you work hand in hand. It's, it, it's hard. I mean, yes, I get an edit letter. So I'll do it. I'll do a draft and sometimes that takes a year or more. And then they'll, my editor will read it and then I'll get an edit letter. But the letter isn't about what, what I should or shouldn't change. Mm-hmm. It's basically, um, letters that kind of give me a lot of things to consider just in terms of character motivations, um, ways to enhance, enhance things and yeah it's it's not um yeah i don't know it feels very much like a tandem kind of hmm. process um so i you know especially so with electric kingdom i mean again with with the f- three four if you count the prologue non-linear um points of view my editor at viking dana ladig you know i would never have been able to write this book without her and it was just hours and hours on the phone trying to figure out how to bring the pieces of the puzzle together. And um, actually, I think probably a really good a good um, parallel would, to make would be in film. I mean, if you think about a director, you've got a t- you've got a team, right? You've got a producer. You've got an editor. You've got a director. You've got the actors. You've got the writers. And they're all kind of coming together to make this thing the, the best thing, the best thing that it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are fewer there are fewer people involved in the creation of a book. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like the the writer and the editor, that relationship is more of a kind of it's, it's kind of happening at once. Um, again, this is just in my experience that may not be true for everyone.
2: Hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, so now a bit of a whimsical question. Um, when you were younger, was there any power, technology or fictional setting that you yearned to have or be part of?
1: Oh, oh man. Well, I was obsessed with the book Jurassic Park. Oh. So I guess, um, you know, I actually in seventh grade, I read, literally read the cover off of my, my paperback, my mass market paperback, Jurassic Park, which I still have on my shelf has no cover on it because <laughs> I just, I would finish it. I would just go back and read it again. Wow. Um, so maybe Jurassic Park would be the answer that park. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I guess that's a tech. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of a, you know, um, I don't know if that counts as a technology or not. No, it, uh, it fits. But also, kind of putting my life in danger there. But uh, but yeah, no, I was I was just I was so obsessed with that book.
0: So you wanted to be in the park, not necessarily in the past with dinosaurs. It was the park <laughs> itself,
1: right? No, it was the park, and there was something about that park too that you know they had they were in those cars that were on the on the tracks, you know, and um I don't know. There was something about it that just seemed so magical and wonderful and. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, or I mean, you could also say, "What's the um, the mix-up files of Mrs. Frank e. Frankweiler?" I feel like that was just talk about wish fulfillment, getting to sleep in and live in the museum. And hmm. um, I guess for me, it was Jurassic Park kind of had a similar. There was a similar feeling there. If, if the museum came alive and was going to eat you, yeah. <laughs> I
0: guess. Yeah. Do you want to comment on the movies at all?
1: I loved the first one and, and I still, to, I mean, I had the poster, a friend, a friend of mine, I'll never forget, you want to talk about the visceral memories of my childhood that mm-hmm. I mentioned before. I mean, Jurassic Park is right up there. I, my friend and I went and we went to see the movie in theaters probably four or five times and we were mm-hmm. both, it was a mutual obsession, the two of us. And yeah. um, then we bought, I remember, I remember staring at the poster that had the announcement of the day the VHS was going to come out. Yeah. Uh. And, uh, I don't remember if I, I don't know if you could even pre-order VHS, but if you could, I did. And if you couldn't, I went and bought it the day of, and I remember watching it on my little TV and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I loved the first one. I'm not going to comment on the other ones. I don't think I don't have enough of, I mean, I think I've seen, I know I've seen a couple of them, but mm-hmm. they don't, they don't seem very memorable. So, mm-hmm.
0: okay, fair enough. Fair enough. What's your current writing project? If you want to talk about that
1: so I can't say too much about it. Um, partly because it's, yeah, I can't say too much okay. about it. It's, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, I, I needed to do something a little more <laughs> lighthearted. <laughs> hmm. Um, and, but it, it isn't, I don't know if you would count it as sci-fi. It's, uh, so I think it's, it would be like a speculative, um, speculative romance, maybe you would call it. Although it, it's not a rom-com. It's, yeah. I don't really know how to talk about it yet. Um, I'm enjoying writing it and hopefully there'll be some kind of an announcement sooner rather than later. And, and then I'll be able to talk about it a little bit more openly at that point. So.
0: Did you have any trouble getting a publisher for this, this novel, or was it pretty much um, a given? You know,
1: yeah. I've just been so fortunate to be part of the same team since the beginning. Mm. Um, now I, I, so I, so I worked with, so, uh, Ken Wright is the publisher at Viking, um, mm and he and another uh, brilliant editor named Alex Juliet, uh, the, two, the two of them worked. Um, I worked with them for the first three books, and then Alex left publishing altogether, and um, that's when Dana Lading came on board, and just equally brilliant and, and fantastic, and um, and Ken has been part of all four projects, and, and Viking and, and Penguin in general it has just been great. I feel very much like um, at home there and they've just been really wonderful in kind of letting me create these stories and uh, hopefully I'll be able to continue doing that with them
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you online you have website social media
1: yeah absolutely so I'm at davidarnoldbooks.com mm-hmm. and um, I'm on Instagram at I am David Arnold
0: okay and and that's spelled standard D-A-V-I-D and then A R N. OLD. That's correct. Did I get that right? Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, you got it. All right, all right. Um that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or
1: words? Uh no, that's that was a great conversation. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you uh talking talking with me. It was great. Thanks, Chris. In the next episode, I speak with Hadass Elbara Avram about British urban fantasy. Hit the subscribe button to catch that interview. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you like this episode, please subscribe for more. If you want daily book suggestions for new fiction and nonfiction studies in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mysteries, gaming, game design, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez, my website, chrisalvarez.com, or fullcontactnerd.com, my Twitch channel, Full Contact Nerd, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you're looking for new military and general history books and information, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. My YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want new technology, science, and space books, check out technologyandspace.com my youtube channel space walks money talks and my podcast technology and space thank you for listening and don't forget to keep imagining the past the present and the future